Jacqueline Clare concerns herself with the moral downfall of society while creating a homestead for her growing family. She is a painter, illustrator, storyteller, and a good friend. During part one of our interview, we discussed what spiritual realism means to her as a creator, the experience of building a homestead with her husband, and how we might enrich the roots of our society. During part two, we deepen on writings from the Baha'i faith about liberty, the movement of the left, and the weakening of family solidarity. Musing on the spiritual destiny of the United States, I'm Sienna May Heath, and this is Leaving the Left for Liberty. When you consider liberty and, and the, the spaces that you've experienced both online and in person, you know, various festivals and things, um, what does liberty mean to you? And, and do you consider any limits of liberty that need to be in place as individuals or maybe even you know, as, a, as a society? Mm. Well, gosh, to give a real proper answer, I probably, this could get extremely like legalistic or so. Um, I would say yes and no. I, I love our ideal of free speech in the United States. And that is very much under attack. And I'm very worried about that because it has all kinds of horrible implications and Jordan Peterson sort of became famous on this issue. And one really important point that he made is that we figure out what it is we actually think and believe by being able to speak, like having uncurtailed rights to at least verbal expression is extremely important for the development of our minds and our society. Um, so I'm very much a value free speech and that sort of thing. I mean, I guess when I think of liberty, I can't help but think of like, you know, like the extremes of lewd behavior in the streets or something. And I, I wouldn't be in favor of that. And uh, yeah, so I mean, I it all comes back to the evolution of the individual. And if people have a, a somewhat universal sense of like dignity and integrity. And that's where religion helps a lot because you have a starting place that is, you can point to and people are convicted by in their own hearts. Um, then you don't really have to like parse out, well, but you can't go run and naked down the street, you know, like, uh, then we could just talk about like spiritual liberty and intellectual liberty and creative liberty. Uh, I know that you, you have some interesting passages on, on this topic, like different, uh, the, the limits and the actual purpose of spiritual liberty Yes, one, one from Abdu'l-Bahá in London is, freedom is not a matter of place, it is a condition. I was thankful for the prison, and the lack of liberty was very pleasing to me, for those days were passed in the path of service, under the utmost difficulties and trials, bearing fruits and results. Unless one accepts the dire vicissitudes, he will not attain. To me, 
Prison is freedom. Trouble rest me. Death is life, and to be despised is honor. Therefore, I was happy all the time in the prison. I have very um, divergent feelings about that passage. On the one hand, it's very beautiful, and we're all imprisoned in our physical form, and we all have a certain degree of um, containment from our circumstances in life, and to to aim for that level of spiritual connection that Abdu'l-Baha had that allowed him to know that his spirit was free no matter what circumstances he was in is should be one of the aims of our lives you know what I mean because we will always find ourselves in physical limitations in this physical world um, my concern about it is that ideas like that may make the the, the little guy that, that I'm one of, just average people, feel overly detached and complacent in the face of looming tyranny and totalitarianism. Like to be like, oh, well, you know what? Your body doesn't really matter. And, and, and I'm not gonna take any sort of action to express my freedom and my rights while I have them because I'm just gonna be very spiritual. And and that's fine. Like, I mean, it, it, it is true that no matter what circumstances you are in, you can connect with God. And again, the Baha'i history is a very literal expression of that in that the Baha'i faith started with a divine revelation inside the most vile and confined of dungeons. You know, that is a symbol for us. Um, so there's this, there's the spiritual understanding of that. And then there's the practical side where I believe we have a responsibility to, um, to celebrate and honor and exercise our freedom and to be defenders of the oppressed, which includes defending before we become oppressed you know defending our rights which um in a way in a way they don't need to be defended because we will always have them but we also don't want to end up in dungeons <laughs> um and i also have mixed feelings I, I, as i was reading that it's like oh i'm not there you know nor do i want to be and i i think in in the united states of america we do have um, certain privileges that we need to defend, certain freedoms we need to defend, not only for our sakes, but for the world, you know, to be that model, not that we're perfect, but, um, and maybe you can speak more to this, because, you know, people might not know much about, like, the Baha'i faith and who Abdu'l-Baha was, um, but we do believe, while those beliefs are tested, <laughs> um, we do believe that America will lead the way um, and that has a spiritual destiny in creating um, a better society in the future. Um, could you, could you just um, tell us more about who Abdu'l-Baha was um, a little bit about the, the faith itself and the ideal that the U S has some grand spiritual destiny? Oh, sure. So um, Abdu'l-Baha is the son 
of the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. And he is seen as the perfect example. So, you know, people say, you know, what would Jesus do? And that's, that's a, that's a amazing rule of thumb. And I think people should ask themselves that question. However, the caveat is that Jesus was the son of God. Jesus was in Baha'i words, he was a divine manifestation. Like he was of a completely different level and than we are because God actually like spoke through him. His word was God's word. So it's hard for us little flawed people to have such a lofty example because there's such a gap there. And so the Baha'i faith has this gift of Abdul Baha, which means servant of Baha. He was a servant of the cause of his father of this religion. And he was not a divine manifestation. He was in a sense, a normal person like us, but he was fully transcended. He was the perfect person. So he gives us this attainable model and he was also the authorized interpreter of his father's teachings. So Al-Jabaha spoke in much more down to earth language than the holy writings of his father. And so he put a lot of Baha'u'llah's teachings. Baha'u'llah is the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. It means the glory of God in Arabic. It was his title. Abdul Baha, his son, put a lot of Baha'u'llah's teachings in more down to earth terms. And one of the things that he talked about among many was the spiritual destiny of the United States, that the United States is a model for a future world commonwealth, um, or it, it is very close to a model in the idea that we are sovereign states, but that we have, uh, we're protected by a federal system that unites us, but we can make sovereign decisions as states. And so that that's a model for a future world where we have sovereign countries, but we have a unified, uh, cohesive world system. And that America would lead the world spiritually. And just like we've been talking about flowers of one garden and how that could actually be a very nuanced and uh, complex metaphor. Like we don't exactly know what that means that we will lead the world spiritually. Um, it may involve that we have some major comeuppance to experience and, and then we have some uh, fruits to share with the world. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very empowering and exciting idea. And that's, I guess it's hard to measure where we are in that unfoldment. It is, it is hard to measure. And that for me, it's also hard to reckon with, um, you know, certain values and perhaps limits to liberty, just as an individual, not saying I want to enforce it on anyone else. Um, and then also, you know, wanting to, um, you know, as they say, fight for a freedom, I like to say advocate or something a little bit gentler, outside of the realm of war. Um, but, uh, 
there there are a couple of other quotes from Baha'u'llah I wanted to read and now my cat is here protesting she's like no freedom <laughs> um but uh, uh Baha'u'llah said that liberty causeth man to overstep the bounds of propriety and to infringe on the dignity of his station can you read that again sure uh, Liberty causeth man to overstep the bounds of propriety and to infringe on the dignity of his station. And he continues, Liberty must in the end lead to sedition whose flames none can quench. Yikes. And to me, I mean, my current understanding of that, at least in this moment, and I just want to also make clear, like, I, I don't believe in leftism or rightism, you know what I mean? Like, I think they're both uh, worldly and corrupt and all that stuff. Um, but we are experiencing a lot of that in infection of liberalism. And that when I hear that quote, I don't know what he's referring to specifically, but what I see right now infringing on the dignity of humanity is you know uh, drag queen story time and parades where you know grown men are you know helicoptering in front of children like like these things uh are i think infringing on the dignity the the push for and it's the push for transit genderism you know i we could talk about other aspects of it but it's the fact that it's being pushed and that it's flagrant and that they're 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 targeting children so all of that like pride which i thought was one of the seven deadly sins but now it's become this virtue and it's become correlated with sexual expression and it usually is actually not inclusive of just like normal, like old, I mean, like old fashioned, like hetero, uh, like in the container of matrimony, like it doesn't include any of that. It only includes um, sexuality that is divergent. Like all of that comes to mind when I hear that quote about having too much freedom, the freedom to like be, a wolf queer or whatever you know yeah to identify as as an animal i hesitated to read uh the other quote i have here but it, it you know bahala did say that know ye that the embodiment of liberty and its symbol is the animal <laughs> now i'm wondering if he was like really referring to the you know the specifics of identifying as such um but you know, I, I I hear you on the complexity of liberty, especially as as it relates to um, pride, as you know, as it's seen today in terms of, I guess what one might call divergent sexuality, and specifically transgenderism, because um, pushing it really in a way pushing anything, um, yeah infringes on one's liberty it infringes infringes on the parents liberty to decide what their children learn and are exposed to parental rights um, are fundamental to 
the microcosm of our society and liberty itself. Um, and I think that um, so-called, you know, freedom fighters, you know, and I, I've, you know, identified as such before, um, we hesitate to talk about morality because when we talk about morality, then if we're at all referring to politics or policy, um, it sure sounds like uh, my native or my mother's native country of Iran, <laughs> uh, which uh, I interviewed her about on two previous episodes, in which, as you were saying, actually, um, even in the West, beauty can be their target. The arts, the culture itself can be their target. And we don't want to, I don't want to invoke um you know, theocracy or any sort of moral authority in the in the way of political power. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think, especially with the rise of, of transgenderism and policy, it needs to be discussed. Um, there, there was another quote I have here, which I'll paraphrase, and you, you had asked me to deepen on, which is the fear well, fear and fraud, the spread of terrorism, the weakening of family solidarity, the laxity in parental control, the degeneracy of art and music, the corruption of the press, if given free reign, lead back the human race to barbarism, chaos, and ultimate extinction. These appear as the outstanding characteristics of a decadent society, a society that must either be reborn or perish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that quote also has a phrase, prophets of decadence. And I, and it's in quotes and I hate to say that sounds like a really cool name for a band. Um, <laughs> <laughs> prophets um, of decadence. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like sort of like death metal or something. Um, but uh, it's, it's really fascinating concept. I thought the part about parental laxity, considering that quote was probably written in the thirties and now, uh, you know, kids, it's just this like slippery slope of like, kids don't have to be polite anymore. And kids don't really have a connection necessarily with their parents. It's like very much more uh, synced with social media and television and stuff like that. And then this leads to them being influenced in all kinds of weird ways. And then profits of decadence, I understand it to be all of those forces, whether it's your, your, you know, activist math teacher who's you know talking about things other than multiplication who's like encouraging you know boys can be girls or what have you um or more broadcasted ideas of the same you know when i'm 36 and when i was growing up and when i was in my early adulthood and stuff like that there was a lot of encouragement from elders you know just the generation just a little bit above to like sexually experiment like that that was like a healthy thing that we should sort of all be doing you know to like find ourselves or something and 
it wasn't just like be with a lot of people. It was like, we'll find out if you're gay or you're bi or you're this or whatever. Like that was just like, it was just like the intellectual, like savvy thing to do. Like, it's just good. It's like healthy thing to do. And it's just like continued to degrade to this point that we have, you know, six-year-olds who are being allowed and encouraged to medically transition, you know? And like, to me, I think that that has some connection with prophets of decadence. Those just like voices in society that appear to be erudite and trustworthy or progressive but that they are just like intentionally or not nudging us towards this disintegration of our own psyches, let alone family and society and all of that. Mm. And and the the part about the degeneracy of art and music brings to mind what you said earlier about the the townspeople in, in your Texan town that wanted to run out the the orchestra from coming to town, <laughs> you know, um, like as if instrumental music could corrupt the the young minds um, of their families and their friends, and it that just that example just really strike strikes a chord, I might say, um, because. Here we have, yes, yes, the, I mean, what really sparked my series was like the the issues of the movement of the left. Um, but then we also see the pendulum swinging to the extreme of the other side. And my cat, Honey, is here seconding the, <laughs> that sentiment. Um, so it's not to say that, you know, leaving the left means le leaving it for the right, but it means leaving it for a form of liberation, even liberating ourselves from the idea that we're almost powerless, like in, in the context of art, like we're powerless to the left owning the culture. And there's nothing we can do about it besides run the orchestra out of town. Um, and it in I have I have a couple of other quotes, and I, I don't mean to like belabor, you know, the left and liberty and all that, but they are just so powerful um, and almost prophetic that I I just like feel called to read them from the writings. And I, I'd love for us to to deepen on them and discuss. And um the first one, which I think we're all too familiar with, is movements newly born and worldwide in their range, will exert their utmost effort for the advancement of their designs. The movement of the left will inquire, acquire great importance. Its influence will spread. And more broadly, the violent derangement of the world's equilibrium, the trembling that will seize the limbs of mankind, the radical transformation of human society, the rolling up of the present day order, the fundamental changes affecting the structure of government, the weakening of the pillars of religion, the rise of dictatorships, the spread of tyranny, the fall of monarchies, the decline of ecclesiastical institutions, the increase of anarchy and chaos, the extension and consolidation of the movement of the left, which is capitalized. <laughs> the fanning into flame of the smoldering fire of racial strife, the development of infernal engines of war, the burning of cities, the contamination of the atmosphere of the earth, 
These stand out as the signs and portents that must either herald or accompany the retributive calamity which, as decreed by him who is the judge and redeemer of mankind, must sooner or later afflict a society, which for the most part for over a century has turned a deaf ear to the voice of God's messenger in this day, a calamity which must, which must purge the human race of the dross of its age-long corruptions and weld its component parts into a firmly knit, world-embracing fellowship, a, de a, <laughs> a fellowship destined in the fullness of time to be incorporated in the framework and to be galvanized by the spiritualizing influences of a mysteriously expanded divinely appointed order and to flower in the course of future dispensations into a civilization the like of which mankind at no stage in its evolution has witnessed mm -hmm. you know it's funny when i read these passages two years ago i was pretty firmly entrenched in them being uh, completely true and i suppose i should say that i still am but some of these some of uh some of this i don't know it just doesn't sit the same way with me and i know you've been asking some questions and um reflecting on some of these newly born movements and perhaps the the emphasis on fighting the left and maybe not so much um looking at you know, looking at the the landscape as a whole. But as I as I read those quotes, what was coming up for you? Well, I was thinking about the retributive calamity and the purging, and that that sounds very Old Testament. You know, it sounds very like wrathful God type vibes, and I'm not necessarily disputing that. But I'm bringing it back to what we were talking about gardening. And that sometimes uh, a fire actually enriches the soil and sometimes letting things die in a, in a freeze, you know, a very thorough freeze is good for the soil and the, the future plants and the manure. <laughs> the manure and the fertilizer <laughs> yeah the poop um, and uh and that the connection between those things that it sounds old testament and it sounds like a punishment but if we are aware of if if we think long term about a continuum of humanity that it isn't necessarily punishment it may just be that there is some there is such such a proliferance of the invasive species that it has to be purged in some way and the result will actually be a better harvest down the road then maybe it would have even had if the invasive species hadn't reached a critical mass and it hadn't been in need of a purging. You know what I mean? Like if we had skirted that and we've been able to just keep things alive and stuff like that, it's possible 
that the growth and the harvest wouldn't be as beautiful and bountiful as it will be by having to have some sort of purging. Um, so, so that's, that's what I chose to focus on when you read that passage. I would say that was the most um, Old Testament-esque part of the passage too. I kind of cringed. I'm like, oof, you know, and even like, um, it, do, it does sound almost um, punitive, but then we, we come to, we come to another agricultural metaphor at the end, which is a mysteriously expanding divinely appointed order and to flower in the course of future dispensations into a civilization, the like of which mankind at no stage in its evolution has witnessed. Um, and I think I've, I've seen it maybe elsewhere in the writings or somewhere else in just um, in my browse, browsing of books, the, the idea that like a new earth or a new world is like a lotus flower you know, emerging from the muck of, of the water and the like the fractals and the sacred geometry that form it there is some sort of order but it's not forced order it's not unnatural and it's not top down it's coming from the bottom the roots and you know like you said even the muck of the, of the fertilizer and the manure and um i appreciate the way you're looking at the retributive calamity because i hadn't really looked at, at it like that before as I guess what I had said, you know, in the first part of our conversation, which is that sacred fire, um, you know, purging the land, it's not, and it's not, it's not making it wrong. And I think, it, you know, shifting from plant relationships to people relationships, it's not making any person wrong, or any person, you know, deemed unworthy, and, you know, must be, it's not the person, it's, it's the, it's the approaches, it's the ideologies, it's the, um, you could say even the the things that restrict our liberty and our ability to be liberated to liberate ourselves that must be purged so that we can fl flourish as flowers of one garden absolutely uh, I don't have it memorized and I don't even know the exact scripture but you know the in the bible I know there's the passage about that we don't war against flesh and blood but about principalities against principalities and something about darkness and high places and that uh, i think those are ideas they're spirits uh however you interpret that the spirit of ideas yeah that that's a really powerful passage um it, it when you war not against flesh and blood but against principalities it, essentially against like politicians one might say like you know politicians are people and I think that's where um there's this tension that needs to be navigated between you know not warring against people but against um maybe concepts um or structures absolutely because it's a fine line concepts and structures also live on beyond people you know yeah. like yeah. Marx died a long time ago you know <laughs> that he did that he did you know bringing it back to to family um the weakening of family solidarity I think we we see 
it, well, I mean, I see <laughs> and extended families too, like maybe even if, um, you know, one family of like of a mother, daughter, mother, father and children, maybe they're in somewhat like solidarity, but because they're in so much solidarity, perhaps then there's the weakening of the potential for unity amongst the extended family. Um, and and as as you see more and more of that, and as you see, you know, some of what you believe to be corrupt ideologies moving in closer and closer, it's like that invasiveness. It's like it, you can't escape it, whether it's amongst your family or your friends or your work. Um, how how are you seeing that manifesting, perhaps in your own life, or just um, you know, in what in what you see outside of yourself, and what what might be some solutions? solutions to um, solutions to um, navigating the lack of unity and maybe creating unity amongst families I think this is why family is used so much in scriptures and sacred writings because I think it's hard I think you know even Jesus wasn't appreciated in Nazareth, you know, like a prophet is, is whatever it is, never welcome in his hometown or appreciated in his hometown. I think extended family can be extremely challenging and, and therein lies the, the metaphor and the call. Um, sadly, I don't feel that I have anything particularly wise and helpful to, to say on this because I do relate to a very strong sense of solidarity in immediate family and it doesn't always translate to um extended family and i would like to be a break in that i would like to be a change when when i am the sort of matriarch of future um people and family members um and i think a lot of it has to do with like how children are raised and that sort of thing like there's a lot of um people in my family like raised by television and stuff like that and it very like much influences the sources that they trust and align with nowadays you know what I mean? Prophets of decadence <laughs> and it's hard to reach them. So I'm sad that I don't have a whole lot of wisdom about how to move backwards to repair those things. I just have some ideas about how I would like to plant better seeds moving forward. Mm. So maybe it's not so much about a remedy as it, as it is about just moving forward into the light and hoping and inspiring people to follow. Uh, one of one of the concepts I've um, I've explored on the show is leading not by force but by inspiration, which I think artists are especially skilled at, such mm -hmm. as yourself. And um, you know, I see behind you contrasted color and graceful shading and landscapes. Um, and again, you know, translating um, from you know nature to 
perhaps the more built environment um, of people, it, it can seem like there's a stark contrast, but you know, as we can see in, in art, there's actually opportunities for, for transition um, and not making any of it wrong, just kind of sitting with it and creating. I can say, and these are all works in progress, but something that I have learned from painting and making art, some pieces come very easily and that's wonderful. And they, they have a freshness to them. And I always want to take the most like graceful, simplest path to a piece being completed. But there's also this phenomenon I have with my paintings of problem children and they are very frustrating and they go through many, 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 many evolutions and, you know, a process of, of seeing what's working and enhancing that and changing what's not and then deciding like what to remove and what to add and then trying this and that didn't work, but it led me in this direction and, you know, it, it goes on and on. And I will say that those pieces inevitably are the most interesting pieces because they you know there are this roadmap that went all these interesting places and it arrives when it finally has that sense where I as the artist feel like okay this feels complete it's it's the journey is finished here it has arrived at a place that I could not have just sat down and contrived. It, it ends up in this very evolved, magical, I never could have thought of it kind of destination. And, you know, people ask me like, where do you get your ideas? And like, how did you think of that? And it's like, it's just the process and me just humbly trying to take steps. So, and that's also why I said, earlier when you were asking about divine civilization i don't know what that will look like and but it's it's going to be really cool like i know that <laughs> um and you know the and in life like we experience that like often our most rewarding beautiful experiences or circumstances are not things we could have pictured ahead of time it's because it is novel that it moves our heart or whatever it is. So, you know, when things are not, when things appear not to be simple, whether it's relationships with our extended family or the state of the world and all of our efforts to try to correct things, sometimes that leads to the most beautiful and unimagined uh, resolutions if you stick with it the the problem children among amongst your paintings reminds me of um, two approaches that writers can have to drafting novels some write by the seat of their pants and some will outline the entire story and then fill it in um, I've I've done the latter and I'm wondering if maybe there is something to the former of writing by the seat of your pants or in your case, painting by the seat of your pants and allowing something to move through you. Kind of like, I mean, I have experienced um, 
characters kind of informing me of who they are or what they want to do next and it's like there's there's countless memes and jokes about this amongst writers of like like the surprise that says like okay okay like you like you have to surrender to the art rather than this the art surrendering to your idea absolutely it's like that with painting yeah I feel like they wrestle me to the ground sometimes wow what's an example of a a a so-called problem child painting that's come to fruition oh sure um most of them have sold I would say um one that comes to mind is distant melody and I I still have it I can show you if you want to see it but um it was actually in my mom often works with me in the studio and she's always like reminding me like yeah you had a meltdown when you were working on that piece or this piece or whatever and I've had certain um and I I I try not to work in a state of of angst but it has happened and I've actually had um breakthroughs sometimes in those moments of frustration and distant melody is one that I was actually in the process of painting over like literally painting over it when I found it it was like oh wait a second this I'll just can it yeah go get it go get it (laughs) So this piece is a few years old and in a way it's very like simple and straightforward. Like it's kind of, um, there's a certain like naivete to it, but I, um, I was actually like painting the black background. I was painting over this underlayer when I was like, oh, wait a second. Like, let me get it where the light is. You can see the whole thing and it's not. You can kind of yeah. see it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's just an example of um here, I'll put it somewhere. Yeah, finding it in the moment of surrender to it. Like I'm just gonna paint over this. And then I was like, oh wait. And people have said like, oh, it looks like a DNA helix or it reminds me of this and that. Or, you know, like people have given so many comments about like what it means or what I'm saying. And um, and I think all of those interpretations are are relevant. The paintings are like an encapsulation of a dream. And all of us who look at it get to have that dream and your dream is going to be different than mine. And whatever symbols you get from it are still meaningful to you. They still have a significance, you know, it's not for me to say what it means, but um, they're, they're invitations to a dream. But uh, yeah, that's just a, a good example of that. Invitations to a dream and spiritual realism, perhaps. Yeah. And the, the, the concept of surrender brings to mind the quote we reflected on earlier about freedom and the um, the experience of surrendering to freedom rather than seeking it out. Um, I think the term surrender or even submission, which is um, used in Islam, it, it comes across as disempowering but also what I'm hearing from you from, you know, from an artist's perspective is that surrendering to the flow state, we'll say, um, 
there's actually power and beauty in that experience. Yeah, it's like what is being surrendered. And in this context, it's like ego, control, and hopefully to some degree opening up to um, higher forces. Is is the term higher forces kind of suggesting though, like, you know, forces and something that's out of our control? Uh, yeah, I guess it could. I, I think of the mystical Baha'i book, The Seven Valleys, and it outlines the individual soul's quest towards God. And the it goes through all these beautiful valleys, the valley of search and the valley of wonderment and the valley of love and the final valley. You're like, okay, get ready for it, you know? And the final valley sounds like this huge letdown. It's the valley of true poverty and absolute nothingness. And I used to, <laughs> like you, you will own nothing and be happy about it. Well, let's see. <laughs> I know it's different. It's different. <laughs> open to, to gross misinterpretation and misuse for sure. But yeah. I, I used to present this in a spiritual storytelling in the show that I traveled with. And, you know, I always had to sort of like lift the audience up in that point because it was like, what? Um, so it didn't sound like the place we were, we were all excited to go to. Um, but part of my understanding of that is that, and it, this is in the Seven Valleys as well, that we no longer like pride ourselves on our, our worldly opinion and, and I and me and what I think and like holding very rigidly to these ideas of self. And that's not to imply that we should abandon our intellectual faculties and truth, you know, discernment, that sort of thing. But that ultimately the, the best stuff is when we get out of the way and we're able to be more of a clear channel. And I don't mean like psychic channeling, but just like a place of uh, receptivity and expression of God's will and God's purpose and God's design. And I think it's interesting. I'm not a physicist, but it's my understanding that if you examine an atom to its like tiniest degree, that at the center of it, there's literally nothing that there's like a spaciousness at the core of an atom, like the core of existence is actually nothing. And it's like, it's interesting that that's also this penultimate in this mystical journey of the seven valleys um, that ultimately that's, we can't force it, but like through submission and, and inner, spaciousness and silence we can like be that space of the the breath of god mm -hmm. in vedic architecture uh, i think it probably just in vedic philosophy in general there are five elements and the fifth one is space known as akash i believe um 
And then meanwhile, also another source that came to mind was Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way. Are you familiar with that book? Uh, she, The Artist's Way? Yeah. 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 And the, um, there's the concept of being a channel for, for the creator um, and being a, a creator yourself as an artist and also acknowledging um, what she believes to be true, which is that all of us are artists or one might say have the capacity to create art um and what is art really besides just creating something that was not there before actually matt kibbe and i talked about that um last christmas in the studio like um it's interesting actually that nowadays we call like youtubers creators um and i i think there's something to that because even if you know that you're just talking uh word is a form of co-creation and there is something about the spoken word that typically exists between at least two people um that creates it creates a flow amongst individuals that perhaps the individual can can um can experience through god or you know becoming a a channel like that like the sufis believe that um, we are indeed channels for for God and that we can open up through meditation and mindfulness um, to that presence. And I, I think also we can have a form of that like we like we do now uh, between two individuals and you know one might believe that that invites a trinity of the two individuals and the higher power. I love it mystical the mystical third that there's there's um what like in a intimate friendship or intimate relationship there's the two people and the relationship itself or like the spirit that binds them and that's kind of like what you just said too like the two of us and and that inspired space between us yeah my, my partner and i have this uh bit going that we would plant the flower cosmos all around our property to to signify you know the great beyond or the you know the cosmos as is our common word for i guess creator or some you know maybe some mystical force that could exist um and and when you know, I, I'm familiar so so much with your work, but I what I what I typically see is um well, I have like the mermaid and I have this peacock perched on a tree um with the moon in the background. And we have we have the full moon and the, the painting behind you. But what was that called? Something melody? Distant melody. Distant melody. Um uh, what are some of the other images from the natural world or elsewhere that that you bring into your art? Uh, so there's a lot of trees. Is that what you're asking? Like, what are the common motifs? Yeah, common yeah. motifs. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of trees, and often they're bare, um, because that's when you see their shape. And a lot of moons, and increasingly more women, and elements of landscape. Um, the peacock that you have, splendor and beauty. It's two things I think you'll enjoy. It's part of my Oniranaut series and Oniranaut means one who travels through dreams and uh, splendor and beauty 
is a phrase from um, a ritual prayer in the Baha'i writings that is specifically for women. So if women uh, in the Baha'i faith, we have um, obligatory prayer and we can choose one of three that we choose to say um, and basically once a day, depending on which prayer it is. And women who uh, it's their time of the month in Baha'u'llah's great wisdom said, we didn't have to do it those days. And- uh, <laughs> Oh, I, I know what, this is news to me. And I'm gonna <laughs> yeah, take that into account. <laughs> we don't have to fast and we don't have to say our obligatory prayer because we just can't be bothered with that. But we do have um, a separate exchange um, prayer that we're invited to say and um and it includes that phrase splendor and beauty and so that painting even though it's of a peacock and i love peacocks and and animals in general sometimes appear in my work also um it's also very much this like feminine spirit in it mm, you'll have to send me that passage of prayer um what might be inspiring you to include more feminine motifs and women in your work? Beauty. I think, you know, moons and, and, you know, curvy trees and curvy mountains and then women and, you know, dancers and so forth. Like it isn't highly intellectualized. It's just me reflecting what I feel is beautiful. Mm. men are beautiful too though right <laughs> yeah they're totally, and totally i love men um but let's face it like men and women enjoy feminine forms you know and and i don't know we could intellectualize it maybe it's it's just an instinct of um, more of a force i feel the world needs a certain sort of energy um there there are a lot of masculine shapes in my paintings I do a lot of straight lines and hard edges and that sort of thing and and people have critiqued me like arty people have critiqued me about like too many hard lines and stuff which is it's abstract expressionism which is sort of my background in art so I'm I'm fine with it uh but it's also very masculine and so you do have the blending of like the feminine shape and the moon and that sort of thing but also with like a very grounded order at some point in the painting often it's been suggested that the feminine is associated with chaos and the masculine is associated with order i don't know that it's that simple mm -hmm. um but in, in relation to your art i i really never uh considered the lines to be like straight or uh, what what was the word used to describe them uh hard edge hard edge yeah no i i i actually perceive them as defined and distinct i like it yeah while also curvy and flowing i just never i never really considered them hard edge mm -hmm. um you know this this does bring us to a topic which we've described which we've discussed um, more privately on like masculinity and femininity and and inspired by our discussions I've reflected more on it and I would say 
that femininity perhaps is associated with space itself, you know, the, the womb, the, the space that um, hopefully, you know, has the capacity to create children or, you know, even if it doesn't, there's, it is a, a literal space and it's a sacred space and it's one that experiences cycles, mm -hmm. um, often um, connected to the moon cycles. And so I, I, maybe it's not so much a coincidence that there are motifs of the moon and of women in your work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How would you describe femininity? Mm. Well, its expression is unique to every individual and of course women have the greater share of it but we all have masculine and feminine energy in us and um there's a receptivity to femininity in many forms and interpretations and it's a it's this balance of receptivity and of like a gentle giving in that order I think um the sort of in breath and then the out breath um as opposed to the masculine which is much more in an, in an initial out breath, you know, there's more of a driving force and feminine energy is a receptivity and then a giving. So sort of like a breath in and then like the flow of, of a river or something like a fluidity to the giving as opposed to like a, an arrow into space or something. Um, and there's also an element of nurturance and mystery to it. I think, it, I think you're really onto something with the breath, perhaps femininity associated with the in-breath and then the out, and masculine associated with the out-breath and the in. Masculine being the initiators, or the initial, yeah, while we each have masculine and feminine within us, I mean, often, you know, women will say, like, that they like to be pursued or that they find it attractive when the man initiates. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm. I think those archetypal dances <clears throat> exist for a reason and they, um, they just resonate on some very deep, you know, sort of Plato's cave kind of way. And, and there's a, there's a harmony to those those archetypal movements and gestures. And in your content on transgenderism, you, know, you have an, an episode called You Don't Belong Here. Um, you go into perhaps the spiritual nature of experiencing oneself as neither masculine or feminine or as the opposite sex. Um, 
And that episode really, really reached me um, in a visceral way because it helped me see beyond the material confusion and, you know, still acknowledging that that is confusion, you know, it's um, incorrect <laughs> um, to, you know, if, if you think you're the opposite sex, you're incorrect, but perhaps there's more to it. Um, and perhaps there's, there's a reason why it's, it's being um, twisted in a way that's um, oversimplified, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, <clears throat> it's the fact that we have made so narrow the definitions of what a man and what a woman are that contributes to it. Um, and I think social media and like pornography and all kinds of stuff has really played into that. So women, young girls, you know, don't necessarily, they don't identify with some very narrow idea of what they have understood a woman is supposed to be. So they reject the idea of being that because they either don't want to be that or they feel like they can't hack it or something, you know, something in there. And then also simultaneously perhaps and what I talked about in that podcast is the fact that we are spiritual beings and we shouldn't be defined um, by our immutable characteristics and that our souls are, are in these like beautiful gifts, but also like baggage, you know, meat suits and that like there's a chance that these young people are sensing the fact that they are not their body and that there's something more and there's something that that can't be defined by the labels people put on them and that is all i believe absolutely spiritually true but instead of them being nurtured and guided along a spiritual path to go deep and understand this and and connect more deeply with their spiritual nature they're being lured into this uh, vacuum of supposed like peer acceptance and joining some sort of weird like cult community and going down this medical transition path that's only going to take them further away from that satori they were maybe about to have you know yeah i met this little girl named well i won't say her name <laughs> i met i met a little girl um actually her name is kind of like the moon which is but i, I won't say exactly what her name is um and this was this was at um at one of the gardening workshops i did with youth and families and she confided in me that she believed she was a furry um and this i mean it's already it already takes me for a spin when someone tells me that they think they're the opposite sex but for this little girl and she and i had see it was significant that she and i had bonded before she told me this so we had this growing bond and then she confided this in me and my approach began to shift from one that's very you know hard lined to curiosity. And so 
she asked me um, if I would take a survey or an online quiz to see if I was also a furry. And I, and I said, no, at first I'm like, I just don't really have time. I was truly pressed for time. Um, and we were, we were potting plants actually together. And we, we sort of had a bit of a deadline, you know, to get things done and I had to get going. Um, but she proceeded to ask me the questions of the online quiz anyway. <laughs> and some of these questions I found to be really profound. One, uh, one being like, do you ever feel like you don't belong here? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, yeah, totally. And th there were other questions too about dreams. And um, she confided in me that she she can lucid dream. I, I offered her that term is what she was describing. She can lucid dream and she dream, dreams of these fantastical creatures. And at times she is one of those fantastical creatures. And at other times she's observing them, witnessing them from above. And we had this fascinating discussion that, you know, had I taken that hard-lined approach and just yeah. said no, which I did kind of, but she was like, I'm going to, we're going to go there anyway. We're going to go on this journey. And so I, I went there with her. Um, I, I wouldn't have experienced what I experienced, which was actually realizing and helping her see too, like, we're just complex beings. Like you're, you're like, you're a complex girl. Like I'm a complex lady. And actually the ABCD multiple choice answers, I didn't fit into half the time. I was like, well, I'm kind of between B and C. I don't know. It's, and then we talk about it and she you know, offer her perspective. And by the end, she was wondering who created the quiz, which brought the question up. I wonder who created the creator. And she she, I think almost at least came to the understanding that she is a girl. You know, something that strikes me in that story, which I think is very beautiful and very sweet, you know, and it's similar to something I said in one of my podcasts about, oh, it was why we should gender affirm. But if you watch it, I'm like saying something very unexpected, which is that we should um, nurture and encourage uh, specifically the masculinity in our boys because that's what they're going to lead with in life like biologically and the femininity of our girls and it was based on this inspiration I had from this um, uh, preacher I guess anyway he makes the case and he's coming from a religious context that our sexuality by which he actually kind of means gender by our like contemporary understanding, but he uses the word sexuality. Our like sacred sex identity is actually a super duper, incredibly important part of who we are. Like it, it doesn't just express itself like in the bedroom, it expresses itself in that receptivity, in that in and out breath. It expresses in every way that we engage with the world that it actually expresses itself primarily relationally like how we relate to people in the world around us and how we do what we do is an expression of our sexuality and that we should honor that and celebrate that and know that that is a gift that we give in in all of our interactions 
whole deeper other like other rabbit hole conversation but what i brought it back to in that particular podcast was the whole pride movement that's making this aggressive effort to like celebrate sex and our sexuality maybe that's not entirely wrong and it is something that like heteronormative society has um disregarded or shamed or undermined or said shush we don't talk about that or whatever and maybe they're and i'm not saying we need to be like openly having sex or or talking about like the the act of it all the time or it's not that it's this embrace of this like energy that we have and that we express like from the moment we're born we're born with this our chromosomes and and our particular energy and that it just needs to be like loved and celebrated and appreciated more by again heteronormative society that that's something we could learn from the pride movement and hearing your story about this girl with the the furry concept i wonder if mainstream society in the old-fashioned sense of the word like heteronormative whatever society that we have just a lack of mysticism we have a lack of these deep and meaningful conversations with young people that aren't just like scripture thumping you know it's like yeah who are you and what do you dream and what does that say about who you are i'm getting so many chills right now like and and we shouldn't leave it to like you know trans activists to be inviting our young people to have these these deeply spiritual magical beautiful discussions there is a lack of mysticism um and perhaps perhaps the movement of the left and <laughs> trans activists you know like they they kind of have attempted to take hold of that that realm um but kind of like we were you know we were saying with art and with culture we can't surrender um and say fine you get that and then we'll just get the <laughs> the scripture thumping <laughs> what else or something boring right and like the math i guess and the science you know which is you know all needed but we shouldn't we shouldn't give in to this the hard line approach now there is a hard line to what is a woman a woman is an adult human female and a man is an adult human male yes um that's kind of the only one one of the only hard lines i will take but even if you like you were saying like don't surrender your in intellectualism you know don't 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 step off of that line if you know it to be true um at the same time, how can you shift your approach to one that is on a spectrum or even releases the spectrum entirely? You know, like, and I, the pride movement is attractive um, to those who see the world in shades, you know, and, yeah. and, and kind of like in, in an artistic form. And the world is in shades. I mean, even like to be a biological man and all that stuff, at the end of the day, hypothetical man is just who he is he's just him you know what i mean like even that is like 
it's all very nuanced and and you know and there's a reason why some of them are like negative forces but there's probably some element of like a positive spark there's a reason why young people are resonating with you know trans activist ideas and stuff like that because they know they aren't just um one they're looking for they're still looking for a shelter of community and identity they're still sort of hiding behind something that isn't just simply the boldness of being who they are which is very vulnerable but empowered and beautiful but also um to know that they're not one man is not the same as another man and one woman is not the same as another woman. And in your view, how would a girl know that she's a girl and the way that she relates to others? Well, I don't know. And, and I'll find out when I'm involved in raising children and that sort of thing. But um, I mean, one thing she'll know, in fact, just like she knows how old she is, you know what I mean? Like, do you really feel three years old? You just are three years old, you know, and you are a girl. Um, but then also to, to just encourage all of her expression and particularly when she, um, you know, shows nurturance and kindness to her pets, or she's like tender with daddy when he has a headache or, she wants to hang out with mom and, and do the things that mom does. And mom like lets her to whatever degree she's capable of and like encourages how well she did, whatever it is. Like it's, I mean, it's not a whole lot different than any sort of parenting and encouragement where you see how they are expression, expressing their uniqueness. And you say, I see you and that's really wonderful. And thank you for doing that. And let's keep doing that. And, and what if the girl wants to do what daddy's doing and build garden beds? And there's a place for her to hang out with, with daddy and do that. And the, the way that she, her reasons for doing it and her ways for doing it will be a unique expression of her femininity you know there's this example given of giving a shoulder massage and like it was just a hypothetical example but like often a male a child will like want to make the muscle surrender like he'll be doing it to like fix the problem and he's gonna like work out the kinks and the you know in the muscles and a girl will often approach it like I'm gonna soothe this and I'm gonna like heal it and I'm gonna you know give it energy and stuff so we're doing the same action but sometimes there's a different energy or expression to why we do it or how we do it is it is it possible that that those in the pride movement and those opposed to it are doing the same thing in different ways Maybe. I mean, I think we're all trying to help children and help the world. Um, we just have different ideas of how to do that. And I would argue maybe slightly different levels of 
sanity and discernment. Um, but I mean, if you're asking if we're, I don't know, I guess, tell me what your theory is and then I'll see if, if it resonates with me. Well, I think my theory was forming when I was listening to you earlier speak about um, girls and boys realizing they're girls and boys and not just because they're told, but like because of like the, the way in which they relate to each other um, mm -hmm. and to their elders and understanding that why the pride movement is so attractive is because it's offering a space for those fluid mystical conversations on masculinity and femininity that perhaps those opposed to the movement aren't actively creating. Yeah, absolutely. And we should be actively creating them because I don't think we're addressing them at all, usually. And yeah. formative. we're just like focused on like, where are you going to go to college? And like, very like a hyper focus on the material instead of the mystical and the spiritual. Mm, true, true. Well, Jacqueline, is there anything else on your heart and mind that you'd like to share? I just really enjoyed this show and I really commend you for this show. And um, this has been a really fun uh, discovery session with you. I don't know if that means like the legal term or anything. I just mean that through this discussion, we have discovered things and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Likewise, Jacqueline. Well, um, I regard you very highly and I'm incredibly grateful that we're friends and that the the wildness of the past couple of years has brought us closer. Yeah, me too. And thank you. Of course. All right. Take care. Bye.